Welcome to Historical Homos, the world's only no-fucks-given guide to queer history. For thousands of years, the powerful heterosexual elite has kept one filthy fact hidden from us all. History is gay as fuck. Every land and every era has had its queers, and every land and every era has dealt with them in their own queer ways. From Hadrian's Wall to Stonewall, the great queers of yesteryear count amongst themselves some of the greatest names in history. Plato, Michelangelo, Virginia Woolf, Marlena Dietrich, Mike Pence. Oops, that one shouldn't be in there. The point is, every gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, non-binary flavor you can imagine can be found somewhere in history. You just have to know where to look. Now you could go read one of the hundreds of dry academic books written on the subject, or you could listen to us give you the X-rated, no fucks given, gossipy, sleazy, full frontal edition. If that's not your thing, be warned. And put your kids to bed, for Christ's sake, we're not running a daycare. But if you're wet, wild, and willing, come right on in. Because the water is human temperature. So let's go back in time and take another rewrite through our history. Celebrate ourselves tonight and cover all the things that still are missing. Welcome to our inaugural, our very first episode of Historical Homos. I am Donald Brophy. I am a writer, producer, actor, general passionate history adventurer. Intellectual even. And I am Bash, just Bash, like Cher. I am a sassy, slutty little historian, amateur historian, fine. I happen to have degrees from Columbia, Cambridge, not that anyone asked. Fuck you. I have a particular expertise and passion for the ancient Greeks, who's who we're going to be talking about today first. And yeah, I mean, fuck yeah, we're here. We did it. You know, we've been working on this for two years, trying to get this podcast off the ground. I can't believe it's finally happening. Yeah, absolutely. We're so excited to be here with you guys today. And we thought... In honor of our very first episode, that we would start this crazy, wonderful journey off with an exploration of what else but toxic boyfriends in Greek mythology. Of which there are many. We've all had toxic boyfriends, and we all fucking love Greek mythology. Oh my god. I was just thinking about toxic dick the other day. Like, I have- Toxic dick? Toxic dick. Explain toxic dick to me. It's like, you know those guys that are such dicks, and they do not deserve your attention whatsoever- but the dick is just so good and you just can't stop. Ah, well, to quote Big Ange, good dick will imprison you. 
<laughs> it is so true. Thank, God bless Big Ange, wherever you are. Well, may she rest in peace. For le- leaving us with those very sophisticated Absolutely. ideas to When the aliens come and they see the modern hieroglyphics that will be reality television in 2023, good dick will imprison you with their one takeaway from the entire... Yeah, the alien historians will write about how our lives all ended on Earth because of toxic dick. They won't even know the Greeks existed, besides for the fact that your shirt will probably survive polyester, polyrayon material. Okay, the shirt is expensive, oh, really? so watch out. But it is it is shocking, like, it, does, it never wrinkles. It's made from whatever Big Ange tits were made from <laughs> and it will survive the ages well before we get too ahead of ourselves let's take ourselves back to ancient greece and provide us a little context bash with you for the old greek civilization so we're talking about like the 500s 400s bc 300s maybe a little bit it's all about athens because that's usually what we have our evidence from mostly but the ancient greeks were famous for being so gay, primarily for these relationships between older men, and I use the term older loosely because it entails a huge range of ages, and teenage boys, right? So everybody sort of writes this off as like, oh, the Greeks were pedophiles and it's weird and we don't understand it. And that's why I wanted to go into this whole topic today because I think there's actually some interesting stuff that it helps us all reflect on. Uh, yeah. About being, not, not to mention... Get, get off to. Actually, one thing about my time at Cambridge as a classic scholar that I would like to bring up at this junction is um, I used to have this weird thing where I like, anytime I was doing Greek work, I got so horny. Like yeah. there was something about reading Greek that just- The creature made, would stir. Like you, the number of times I left the library to go jack off in my dorm room is crazy. When I was reading like Greek tragedy. Aww. So that's who I am, just for a little insight. That's very sweet though. Right? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you I'm for sure saying that. Those, no one has ever said that. I'm sure we turned a black light on those dusty old <laughs> wooden walls of Cambridge. There would be a lot of those wood panels would be crawling away looking for a womb to fertilize somewhere along the way, yeah. but maybe from the 16th century. <laughs> Yo, so at the time, Greece was more of a collection of city-states than it was an actual yeah. country, with Athens being the, the swaggery New York, Hollywood kind of like everyone wanted to emulate cool sibling of all these city-states, am I correct? Yes, yeah. Athens is like the bit, the head honcho, the HBIC. They've just won the war against the Persians, so they have a bunch of money, they have a navy. Sparta is famously their big competition, right? But Athens is the fun one. Athens is where everyone is being gay and going to the theater and doing all this stuff. All the Spartans do is, like, kill each other and teach women to read or something, you know? So yeah. it's just, it's it's not very exciting over there. But the Athens were not teaching the women to read. The Athenians are such misogynists. They don't give a shit about women or teaching them to read or educating them or really fucking them, it seems. And the what's interesting about the Greeks too is that they have these gay gods. Like not every culture has gay gods, you know? The Romans didn't have any stories of their own. Obviously they stole everything from the Greeks because they had no imaginations, but the Greeks have these myths that are sort of homegrown. So I think that's interesting too, because this, all this gay stuff was clearly baked deeply into their culture. So that said, we should probably, you know, give a little trigger warning to be fair to everybody that we are going to be talking about some, you know, relationships between older adults and what today we would call underage teenagers. So be warned. But, but all pre-pubescent in, their, in, in that sense. I mean, post. I'll just post, excuse me. All post. <laughs> Such a subtle difference. <laughs> all post-pubescent. And, you know, like they weren't going around having sex with babies. Yeah. Which is a common misconception. <laughs> which is obviously very, very, very bad. 
But, you know, in terms of the modern age of consent, obviously the Athenians didn't give a flying fuck about any of that. So, you know, in terms of a trigger warning, we should say that, like, in terms of the modern sensibility, we are talking about teenage teenage guys and an older which you know at the time the life inspector wasn't so long so older could mean in their in your 20s or 30s yeah no totally and like i don't think we should try to understand greek sexuality through a modern lens of anything of age of consent of sex of what they're like it doesn't make sense right so let's approach it with that the only way we can try to understand is if we have the ability to talk freely about it Hmm. Without any Absolutely. modern constraints. Yeah. Copy that. God, thank you, Professor. There we go. And with that, we open the Book of Gay to read our first story in historical homo's history. Right, Act One, the myth of Zeus and Ganymede. It begins many eons ago on the slopes of Troy, generations before Brad Pitt would storm the city and try to kill the fuck out of Eric Bana. Is that how you say his name? Mm. Bana. But nah, that's definitely, right? that's definitely not how you say it. Not how you say it. <laughs> he's, he's Australian. It's like Eric Bana or something. You say tomato, I say tomato. <laughs> that, also, that movie was terrible. Do you remember that oh movie with Brad Pitt? So bad. And the long, I mean, they looked hot, and that's pretty much what cinema is about. But back to the real Troy. It's a gorgeous afternoon. A young prince is meandering through the mountains, herding his sheep as all good Trojans are wont to do. He is the son of the king, and much more importantly, ball-droppingly beautiful. Golden hair, ravishing bod, suggestively perky bottom. Kind of like a young me, really. His name is Ganymede, and his beauty hasn't escaped the notice of literally anyone around him, including the gods. Rumor has it, the goddess of the dawn, Eos, is planning to abduct him and whisk him off to live with and or inside her. The other gods have a problem with this, not least because the head honcho, king of the gods, divine dom daddy Zeus himself, who Donal is obviously impersonating today with that hair, (laughs) has set his own lustful eyes on the twinktastic Ganymede. So it's no coincidence when behind the idyllic scene I just sketched so vividly above, a storm begins to gather, rapidly gaining on the beautiful prince. Because lightning Dick Zeus, god of thunder, is about to come on the scene in every sense of the word. Nice. Yeah. We needed that. Zeus, of course, was famous for his wandering eye, much to the chagrin of his neglected and therefore psycho bitch wife Hera. Usually he had the decency to mack on his babes down on earth, carrying them off willingly or not, to bone and then birth him the next generation of demigods. But not this time. Zeus isn't about to let some slutty dawn goddess mop up his sloppy seconds. He wants the boy entirely to himself. Doesn't that just make your penis tingle? So Zeus turns up the heat on his hurricane, encircling People Magazine's hottest Trojan of the year in a maelstrom of mist, thunder, and mask-for-mask lightning. Suddenly, the horny king of Olympus emerges as a giant eagle, obviously the hottest thing you could be, grasps the terrified boy in his talons and beats his wings up toward Mount Olympus. Then, boom, they land. Zeus is safely whisked off the most gorgeous boy in the world to his new home in literal heaven and wastes no time in congratulating Ganymede on his recent elevation. Ganymede's father is back on Earth, and he's in absolute pieces at this point. His prized, beautiful son is nowhere to be found and presumed dead. Zeus, in a rare moment of giving a crap about someone else, takes pity on the king and lets him know his son is now immortal and living with the gods, which is obviously better than living with his pathetic biological family. 
He sweetens the deal by paying the king with a couple immortal horses and a magic grapevine. And sadly for Ganymede, that price is right. The, his father rapidly gets over the effective death of his child faster than Zeus can pop a boner. Back on Olympus, though, Hera, queen of the gods, will not stand for the affront to her honor. So instead, she takes out her rage on the Trojan people and becomes an enemy to them for all time, including to the king's grandson, Priam, who's the father of Paris, who's the scheming, womanizing bastard that eventually seduces Helen of Troy. So thanks to Zeus's homosexually wandering eye, we get the Trojan War, thousands of men dead, and enough drama to sustain the poets for a thousand years. Now that is what I call Greek tragedy. Couple of questions on that. Yes, please, it's weird. First of all, Hera. I mean, why would she be jealous of a mere mortal young man? No, good question. I think the, she's, she's just jealous of anyone who's taking Zeus's attention away from her, even though Zeus has proven time and time again that he does not want to hang out with his wife or in her bed. A little bit of a misogynistic myth or a little insight into how they view mm. women. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Hera was also annoying, though, so maybe that is why Zeus didn't want to fuck her. Mur I don't know. Sound like she was kind of a murderous <laughs> fuckhead as well, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, she did. Oh, she was not to be trifled with. Absolutely. Punished a whole civilization just because the kid was cute. Right, yeah. I wish they would write that about me someday. Maybe, Maybe they, they will. will. Maybe I'll bring down a country someday. <laughs> <laughs> The myth, I think, is basically trying to reflect this whole tradition of pederasty, right? Which is the fancy word for older men being in relationships with teenage boys or young men. So it's kind of a sensitive subject. Like, we basically just think it's pedophilia, like we said already. But in the ancient world, this was a completely natural and, and socially approved type of relationship. So, and Ganymede, the story of Ganymede, we've kind of forgotten about, but it was everywhere back in the ancient world. If you, if you live in New York, you can go see at the Met, like a giant mosaic of Ganymede being taken by the eagle. Um, so that image was everywhere. And I guess the myth is sort of a way for the Greeks to be like, huh, even Zeus is doing it, so must be fun, must be right, you know, because they kind of reflected their own beliefs onto their divine models. So, but it's not a metaphor for something? It's not like... Uh a lesson on life in some way? I think some people think of it like that. Like some, some people talk about the myth as Ganymede is just the ideal of youthful beauty and they're sort of elevating it to the heavens to live forever with the gods. So like beauty is kind of a divinity and all that. But I don't know. It's, I, I don't think that the Greeks thought on a daily basis in mm. that kind of like super symbolic way it's and it's not like we think about you know the story of adam and eve being very symbolic or something if right. that's something that you well believe. basically they're normalizing the fact that what is very prevalent in the society is older more mature guys having affairs or taking um the early manhood of other you know up-and-comers and bringing them, like, mentoring them into society. It's basically yeah. the archetype. I thought you were going to go in a really different direction when you said taking their manhood. I was oh, like, <laughs> no. I, mean, I was like, that, sound, sure that sounds kind of hot. Yeah, I'm sure that <laughs> happened too. No, but it, yeah, it, for me, it, it's it's definitely that. It's the, the Greeks reflecting something very natural in their society. And it was, these relationships between older men and younger boys were, they were erotic. They were sexual. They were not, they were not purely sexual. You know, that wasn't the, that wasn't the intent. But when Sophocles, a great tragedian of ancient Greece, writes about Ganymede, he says that Ganymede's thighs inflamed Zeus. And that's like a whole thing about the, the 
primary form of sex in these relationships is what is called intercrural sex, which I know sounds very hot. Explain that. Which is when the like the older guy's on top and just puts his dick in between the thighs. I'm trying to do a diagram of this and like sort of jacks himself off that way. Okay. Um, so because they weren't really into like foreplay at this time, right? Like blowjobs were. Considered- well, it's basically the thigh sex and kissing that you're supposed to do in these relationships. You're not to, like blowjobs, anal, like all of that is technically considered very gauche by the Greeks, whether you're doing it with a, a man or a woman. So it, it's not really something that was done at the time. Of course, everyone did it. So you could technically say the Greeks weren't gay at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ex- except for everything I'm about to tell you. <laughs> so were the myths, were they real to the Greeks? Do they think they actually happened? Yeah, I th- like in some, this is the really interesting thing too that makes it sort of different from the Bible stories or, or something like, well, I guess people think that those happen too. Some people. Yeah. Um, but the Greeks thought that all of these people like Achilles, Hercules, all of them did exist at some point in the legendary past. So, and of course they thought the gods were real. So for them, it, it was no longer the case that gods regularly interacted with human beings, but they definitely thought that it used to happen no matter how far ago it was, you know? Mm. Um, And actually, importantly for the Greeks, they did believe that the gods could still appear to them, you know, in Epiphany. So that's like a big part of Greek religion is is recreating the epiphanies of the gods in a temple or anything like that. So yeah, this is is real to them on some level. Acto, the very, very gay Greeks. So basically, the Greeks were so fucking gay, but like, why? What was it about? How did it all start? I mean, why were they so gay as opposed to like a lot of the other ancient civilizations around at the it's, time? It starts with hating women. No, but that was obviously a big part of it. Like the women in ancient Athens, at least, were pretty much secluded. If uh, women of a certain class, you know, if you're a farmer, like you go do whatever you want. But aristocratic women were kind of kept at home, very domesticated. They were not out and about in society. So men spent most of their time together, right? And I mean, you try not being gay if like everyone at your local Equinox is working out in the nude. Like they are- Covered in olive oil. Covered in olive oil, all lubed up. Like they are always naked, these Greeks. They work out naked, they compete in sports naked. They're just running around naked all the time. So of course they're gonna start Shipping each what other. What if you had low-hanging balls and you were Greek and you were trying to like run a marathon? That would be incredible. We should we should get some Greeks on to discuss that. There were no jock straps at all. <laughs> no, I know, right? Just tits material that stuff. And like they seem to have done a lot of wrestling too. Yeah. You know, so they were really into like squeezing the balls on the yeah. skin and stuff like that. Interesting. Doesn't sound pleasant. So, but this type of relationship the, that existed in pederasty was much more an institution. So it was more structured. It had a code of etiquette behind it. You couldn't just do anything, you know? Right. And that's what's interesting about it is like the, the older guy who's called the erastes in ancient Greek, which just means the lover, mm. is supposed to sort of court the younger one. And top. Put, the top before the thigh top um, is supposed to court him. And then the younger one who's called the Eromenos, which means beloved in ancient Greek is not supposed to give in too soon. Like he's supposed to be a little coquettish <laughs> and like, Oh, you brought me presents. Yay. Yeah. You know? And so they like bring him, you're supposed to bring him like rabbits and fighting cocks and weapons and all of this stuff that I guess boys loved back then. My mind just keeps on going to the women at home being like, fuck, who are you bringing that rabbit to? Like, <laughs> what happened to the rabbit? You brought it to that little slot bag down the gym. Yeah. 
I mean, not that much has changed, really. You come, you come home with rabbit fur on your. I know <laughs> you were with the Romanos group. It's like the equivalent of the lipstick on the collar. Yeah. Pediatry, pediatry, pederasty, pederasty. There we go. As opposed to pedophilia, what's the difference? Well, I mean, like we said, these like these teenagers are post-pubescent. Like they're not. You know, they're, they're not young children. We talk about pedophilia as being anyone who's underage, I think, uh, under the age of consent nowadays. Mm. That's kind of our definition. But the Greeks don't have any concept of consent, which is like, you know, gross and problematic to us in so many ways for, yeah. for women or men. And of course, they are also marrying girls as soon as they have their, you know, periods, if not younger. Uh, so, so not a lot of free will, if you will. Not a lot of free will well, in terms, unless you're a rich like uh, like sort aristocratic or semi-aristocratic man, you're the only one that really gets to call the shots. Yeah, well, yes, that's true. I mean, I, I'm not sure about no free will. They did invent democracy, so they they've right. got they've got some that? chops. Yeah. Um, but society back then was more structured in these ways. Like the the life expectancy was what maybe 30 years. Mm. So by the time you're 15, you're middle aged for most people, you know. Mm. And for aristocrats, it's different. They they have better lives. They live longer, you know, as in every era of history. But it, it's just a slightly different, you know, calculus that they're operating on. So that's all happening. These, the, the younger one, the Aromanos, is typically somewhere between 13 to 17. And then this older guy, the Erastes, is supposed to be anywhere from 25 and above, we think, roughly. Right? So then there's also that gray area in the 18 to 25 period where we know that there are relationships between people that age and younger and between that age and older. So it's not all cookie cutter, you know? So if you want to see this situation live in action, you just Google coach fucks player <laughs> into Pornhub, basically? Absolutely. Right, absolutely. That's exactly, That's what exactly it was. Those are all primary sources from ancient Greece. Gotcha. There, there is a lot of anxiety around the gymnasium as a pickup spot. So like that coach fucks player thing is something that plays into it because everybody is worried about all of these naked boys running around working out and older guys coming in and trying to like hit on them. Of course. You know? And if you like, it's an, uh, is it a status symbol if you get the hottest young guy, you know? Yes. Right. Yeah. And that's totally what this is about. It's almost like a, like a British boarding school, like a prefect system. Yeah. It's like, it's a way of selecting the boys who are not only the most beautiful, but have the best character. Just, I'm you know? very triggered by that because that reminds me of not being picked in PE in the football team. I would be the last one to be molested. But that's some, because you were gay. Some like, yeah, well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, yeah, I'd be left with the, the, the guy dragging his left leg behind him to, to mentor me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'd take it. Yeah. So yeah, and back to that point about Coach Fuck's player, like it's sort of it's supposed to be more than that. It's supposed to be a, a loving relationship. It's it's supposed to be a mentorship almost. So it's not just about the sex. And of course, that's where all of our pervy minds go immediately. We're like, how much were they fucking and in what holes? Mm. But it was actually much more about bringing these younger men up to be good citizens, because like we said, they lived in a democracy, right? So the men all had a very important civic social role to play, very public roles. So there's all this anxiety in the Greek mind around how do we get good men to lead us, you know? And how was that not in the family structure, like the way we have in the modern sense, like your father being the one that would kind of fuck you, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> your, 
your, your father who would teach you about anal sex. No, how is it not like your father or like members of your family that would be the, you know, kind of uh, your mentors or whatever? Like this seems like it was more of a communal experience. Well, think about the luck of the draw that people get with their fathers. Not everyone gets a good father. And I, th I think the point is that this is almost, it's like it takes a village, you know, it's, yeah. I don't think they're leaving everything to these, to these uh, parental figures. There's also a different relationship between parents and children in ancient Greece. It's not this, it's not necessarily the same nuclear family idea that we have. Like families are bigger. They have, you know, cousins and stuff that you live near and you're not educated by your parents. You're educated by, at least if you're of a certain social standing, you're educated by a tutor or, you know, someone from outside the family. So I think this whole, on the one hand, there is this sexual side to pederasty where it obviously evolves because men are just horny for hot boys. But there's also this side where it's like it, it plays a really important social role because they need good guys around. And it doesn't always work out. I mean, Socrates had a really hot uh, beloved, uh, hot Aromanos. Of course he did. Uh, and Socrates was famous, famously hideous. But Alcibiades, his Aromanos ends up being a traitor to all of Athens because he goes over to Persia and sells state secrets. So, you know, it doesn't always work out. Right. But, but it's nice work if you can get it, is what you're saying. I mean, that's a, it's, it's not a bad system in theory. Yeah, no, exactly. It's a mentorship system. And it's amongst the aristocratic and middle class, if there was a middle class at the time, men. Basically, like, moneyed men got to be mentored by other older gentlemen, and it was a communal experience in the city of Athens. So everyone brought everybody up, and it actually created a very strong, tight city-state of warriors. Well, in theory. In theory. In theory. Yeah. In theory. Unless Socrates' little fucking piece, in that piece of ass went over to went over to Persia. But that makes me think of something, which is that it also increases uh, ties between citizens, right? Because now yeah. you have non-marriage-based ties between these different families. So if you're Erastic, if your lover is like some old powerful guy and you're an up-and-coming family, like that's really good for business, right? So that's also why probably parents approved of these relationships. Like these were totally socially approved relationships. It wasn't like there were a bunch of queers running around in Athens and they weren't, you know, they were all in the closet. <laughs> so you come over to the gym and your mom's like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What what, happened? what have you got for me? Don't come home. You get any rabbits today? Can you put some more olive oil on your ass? <laughs> no, exactly. And But something you said, though, the icky sexual stuff, it's like we think it's icky, but it's like it wasn't icky. No, it's not icky. And we have, to, we have to try to understand that, that these relationships were mentorships, but they were also sexual and erotic because the Greeks didn't distinguish between those things in the way that we do, you know? For us, it, it's like, oh, well, you have a relationship with your teacher and your teacher is your teacher and your boyfriend is your boyfriend. And it's like, that stuff was more... Really, your teacher's not your boyfriend? <laughs> we'll get back to that later. For, for most of us. I, I didn't have a good career in high school. <laughs> so there's all of that. It's all about turning uh, aristocrats into good men. And when you read about it in you know, Plato and stuff like that, they really emphasize the love side of it. So, and, and that's always been something that really sticks out to me about this is that it's about the love between men and the way that when men actually love each other, especially in a democratic society, then they become better men. Do you mm. know what I mean? Yeah. So the Greeks talk, the Greek word for love is eros. 
And eros is not like our, I mean, I guess in English, love has lots of different connotations. It means, you know, filial love, friend love, sexual love, romantic love. But for the Greeks, eros is a, they have different words for those other things. Eros is very specifically passionate love. So they have this idea, or Plato has this idea, that eros drives men to fall in love with beautiful things, which are necessarily good, because beautiful things are always good to the Greeks. And then that makes you a better man. You know, mm. so and, and then the Eromanos becomes a better teenager or man by virtue of being in this relationship with someone who is ennobled by the power of Eros. I wonder if we weren't so bogged down by, by thousands of years of Christianity and, you know, self-hating, you know, like prudery and all the rest of it, if the situation would be that different today. I mean, there's definitely obviously, you know, like the Kinsey scale, there's people that are as gay as fuck like yourself. And then <laughs> there's people that are a little bit more kind of like, you know, on the Kinsey scale or whatever like that, you know, like a little bit bisexual, would yeah. never admit to themselves. And yeah. Stuff. And I think that's the other important thing here. It's not like these people saw themselves as gay, right? Like there's no concept of homosexual. There's no concept of heterosexual. In, in, in terms of behavior, the norm for men at least is bisexuality. It's probably more normal to a Greek mind to be into boys and women than it is to just be into boys or just be into girls. By boys, we mean post-adolescent. Yeah, these, yeah. Te these teenagers, youths, youths. Yeah. Young men. Right. So it, it's, it's a very, you know, highfalutin concept when you get to Plato and all of that. And I think it shows that they were trying to explore it themselves, you know, just like, just like you're trying to relate it to our modern society. It's like, what do these relationships do for us? Mm. So it's not, it's not all about sex, but it's slightly about sex. It's not all about, um, it's not all about love either. It's about creating a better society overall. Yeah. So it's an interesting, interesting idea. Yeah. And and the other side of it is that, you know, those were obviously that was one type of homosexuality that existed at the time, right? It's not like we have we have all sorts of evidence from graffiti and, you know, uh, paintings and all sorts of like people were fucking each other every which way as they have since the beginning of time. Right. Well, I mean, that's the, just the dirty secret, really, isn't there? As much as we try to intellectualize things and talk about things till the cows come home, at the end of the day, while we're talking right now, people are fucking all sorts of fucking, you know what I mean? In this it's very like, house. At the, at, the end, <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, it's just like human beings are human beings. Yeah, but, but the reason I bring it up is because the, there were homosexual relationships that happened between adult men as well. Oh, okay. You know, and... All, everything we're talking about only holds for Greek, uh, like Athenian citizens, right? So people who are completely enfranchised in Athens as a democracy. If you were a slave, if you were, or if you were enslaved, excuse me, if you were a foreigner, if you were from any other city, then none of these rules necessarily apply to you. Right, which is a massive swath of the population. Yeah, huge, I mean, we're much bigger than a, about, yeah. We're probably just talking about aristocratic men, right? Which is a relatively small percentage. And the other interesting thing is is that a lot of these relationships continue well into old age, right? So once a boy kind of uh, once a youth graduates from that kind of thirteen to seventeen range and they become an adult, 
they still maintain these relationships with their older lovers. And maybe they're not sexual anymore, we don't really know, but they still maintain that mentorship side for sure. There's one who follows a, a tragic poet named Agathon, who was another beauty, beauty of the day, apparently, all the way up to the court of Alexander the Great in, in Macedon, or what would become the court of Alexander the Great. Who was a, a basically a product of this entire- Who was a total bisexual himself. <laughs> Who bloody cares? I don't. Things haven't really changed that much since then. I mean, or do you think this is a holdover from this culture that gay men still kind of worship youth and fetishize uh, older dominant men? Yeah, no, I think the Greeks literally invented that. Like, I, I think that sort of like daddy twink dichotomy that is still alive and well today. But I think it definitely still has an effect on you know, the, the worship of youth in gay culture and, and the fetishization of these, of these older men as, you know, more manly, more dominant, more whatever. Oh my God, actually funny side note. Somebody told me um, that the, the new word for a femme top is a blouse. Like someone who's, oh, who's <laughs> that makes sense. Someone who's a top, but who's kind of like a femme twink is a blouse, oh, which I think blouse. is so gl glorious. Yeah. So, and, and I think the other thing is that there's there is this double standard almost in society that still exists today where younger men are expected to be sexual and and sexually experienced but then we also have to like protect them from that from doing that too soon mm. and 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 then at the same time they don't have a lot of positive mentors for what loving relationships are like you know at, at least for for gay men especially i don't think i had any examples in my young life of like loving gay men until like I saw Will and Grace, and even then Will doesn't fall in love with anyone until like the eighth season. I mean, it's fucking mm. depressing. Yeah, I was very, I was quite lucky, or you, or you, or you could consider unlucky because I had a very call me by your name experience when I was like fourteen, living in Rome, and I had an affair with a teacher who was like 24, 25 at the time. Yeah. Only like a ten year difference, which is which is probably the exact like age of a demographic of what was going on that's yeah that's why this this uh, th this conversation was so interesting to me because i was definitely considered like underage um but i was definitely obviously physically and you know intellectually kind of able Re ready uh, to go exactly but i was very i was very lucky because um you know the guy that the teacher was uh, kind of a gentleman and we, you know, we didn't, well, he didn't treat better shows me as a child. We were just, yeah. we just struck up a relationship. It was kind of a very natural, yeah. natural thing. I didn't even think twice about it at the time. But then of course, like I think reality set in and he did. And then the whole thing was over. I think the reason, one of the reasons why we have well-intentioned laws is that, you know, it's like emotionally, um, you know, people, uh, you know, 14, 15 year olds, they can't, they don't know how to, they think that's their, their whole world. They're mm -hmm. not thinking, oh, you know, like on to the next one, they're like, this is it. I want to spend the rest of my life, you know, they're emotionally yeah. unable before they haven't lived long enough. No, and it's, it's not to say, like, obviously there are a, a lot of older people who take advantage of younger people in, in that way, you know, like I'm, there are plenty of uh, examples of that, but I don't think it's always like that, you know, and I think we have this, we get very sensitive about teenagers being sexual beings, like, Whereas, like, when I was a teenager, I was begging for it from anywhere I could get it. Like, women and men, you know? And so, like, I, I just think we... It's almost like the call me by your name of it. Like, we're happy to watch 
beautiful love stories where you know they they don't they pan away from the two lovers when they're about to make sex when they're about to make sex you're welcome for that and, and you're you're not supposed to see any of the sexy part but then when Stephen Fry marries like a 21 year old guy everyone's like oh my god it's so disgusting and again can we also just note that okay this is all going on in in, in Greek society this mentorship of and sexual mentorship I suppose you could even say but let's face it girls of the same age were still i mean it was still going on between older guys and younger women as well yeah and that's a huge <laughs> point to me because people in modern like modern plenty of modern scholars are like no 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 the greeks were gay in in a completely different way they're not like us we can't look at greek homosexuality and relate it to modern homosexuality and i'm like well you don't say that about them marrying the 12 year old girl you know you, right. they, they look back and they're like yeah that was weird but they're not like oh they're so fundamentally different from us like no they're still heterosexual like you're heterosexual yeah. they're just doing it in a different way or kings of europe you know like in the middle ages and into the renaissance marrying like 12 year olds you know yeah it's fucked up it's stuff. fucked up it's fucked up to yeah. us but it's like that doesn't mean that they are different from us so i think that we can trace a line back to these greek i guess what's interesting about the greeks is that they were that it was okay it was normal to do it with guys too which is what makes them interesting yes and and there's also this whole thing where you know this tradition of greek love between men becomes in the 19th century something that the victorians talk a lot about so oscar wilde at his trial has this famous speech where he talks about the love that dare not speak its name right and he's talking about greek love he's talking about he's trying to defend his affair with this younger man and say it's it's like the greeks did it i'm not doing sex it's just like you know all platonic mm. not a great defense and no, <laughs> no and it did not the work old bailey <laughs> <laughs> they were like great writer <laughs> terrible defense attorney for himself <laughs> yeah. no yeah he was one of those people you know those people who are like i'll be my own attorney oh, it's like always oh. a bad idea yeah. he went to jail and it did not end well but but yeah, it, it, there, there was this sort of false distinction between Greek love, which is platonic love, and then homosexual love, which people were starting to talk about in a sort of clinical, psychological way. And so the pedophilia side starts to become associated with homosexuality, and which is really damaging to gay men over the 20th century. Yeah. Because like that's a, that's a whole thing where it's sort of assumed that homosexuals are naturally uh, pedophiles in some way. And I think it, it's all about criminalizing homosexuality in the public imagination like that. The big thing for me is that these relationships were a way of celebrating love between men. Like that's what I always go back to. What, even if there was an age difference or whatever, like in theory, this was supposed to be about making people be better people. And I think that's actually something we could learn from, you know, mm. looking back at that, not in terms of like recreating the relationships, but in terms of thinking about like, what is the purpose of, you know, love? It's, it's not just like having, it's not a narcissistic tendency to like have someone look after you and all of that. It's like, it's actually about making us all better people. So I'm going to leave it with that grandiose insight. You didn't even ask me if I had been in a call me by your name relationship. Have you been in a call me no, by your name? No, and I really wish I had. Well, they don't like the gay ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, even though I am as gay as a goose, but they don't. Yeah, uh, what? Uh, but it, it is interesting that you weren't, I mean, considering that you're such a... So hot. You were asking for it too much, weren't you? Yeah, I think yeah. I wanted it too much. Yeah, they thought you were carrying a, a wire. Like, <laughs> you, were, you were asking for it so much, they were like, <laughs> she's wired, that one, stay away <laughs> Let's take it back for a second. Have you ever had an older boyfriend, partner? 
I'm definitely, I definitely think the older guys are more interesting. It's exactly for this reason, actually, is that they have like something to teach you, you know, like something that you can learn from. Um, but uh, so I have had older boyfriends, but I was famously not 15 when I had them. Yeah. This Zeus and Ganymede story also becomes very uh, influential in European history. So it's not just the Greek, you know, homo-pederasty of it all. The, the image of these gods being gay with one another becomes really big in like European art and stuff like that. Christopher Marlowe, who we're going to talk about in another episode, has a play where he has Ganymede on Zeus's thigh. You know, so like... This story kind of gets forgotten because Greek mythology is bowdlerized and straightwashed and they take all the all the gay stuff out of it. But it's always been there. Yeah. So even though it's toxic and leads to tragic endings. So at the end of the day, really what I'm taking from this and what I feel like I'm learning from this is that this was actually kind of like a, a quite a nuanced but very evolved beautiful social structure that existed in the city-state of Athens that kept the city tight kept these men I mean the Greeks very famously would encourage their soldiers to be boyfriends because it meant that they fought harder yeah for each other in in wars I mean why have we lost that why don't we yeah there was the sacred that's the most that makes the most sense to me like there was the the sacred band of Thebes where it was a a group of 300 boyfriends right because they thought that if they fought if you fought side by side with your boyfriend you would never be a coward which is kind of brilliant like absolutely if I was like someone was coming from my husband that like literally you know what I mean it's yeah or or if someone that you really want to fuck and you're like shit I better not look like a little bitch yeah you know, yeah. like so that that worked. That definitely oh, worked. Yeah. They were they were actually the most formidable fighting force in Greece at the time. Maybe the Pentagon is listening. Maybe they'll put some of their loaded budget into <laughs> no, but I think gay boyfriends. I think you're right. I think we have something to learn, especially as a democracy where people fucking hate each other's guts. That there is something about these ties between yeah. people that can exist that have nothing to do with, you know, marriage or, or any of the sort of social structure of, yeah. uh, and it's interesting to me because when heterosexual I, social structure, when I had my experience in Rome, when I was 14 with this teacher, I was actually on, so the European union have this, um, system where the, in order, in order to encourage, um, you know, cultural diversity and understanding, they, they have each public school will be partnered with another public schools in another country in uh, the European Union. And you will go when you're like 14, 15 and spend three months as a student exchange. Making out with a teacher. Making out with teachers. Right. Getting <laughs> sodomized in the oh. Garden of the Borghese. <laughs> we'll cut that. Oh, wait. One thing that I always think about that we have to talk, maybe we have to do an episode on this, but like... I always wonder how people had sex in ancient Greece, like butt sex, like safely. How they douche? <laughs> yeah. That's really like, what you're talking how do you, about. Like, how do you prepare? Uh, well, apparently they had lamb stomachs sewed together and um, you know, they filled them with well water and, and, <laughs> and totally making this up. I thought that was so real. <laughs> Well, I'm so you're like, you're like where my acting comes in. <laughs> you're like douching and you're like, it better not look like little lamb guts anymore. I'm sure they just weren't afraid of a little poo. Yeah. And we'll leave you with that. Don't be afraid of a little ancient Greek poo. Yeah, and don't be afraid of a little of, of a little pubic hair either, you motherfuckers. Okay. We're not you know what I mean? You have a personal axe to grind here. <laughs>
don't know why everyone has to be bald douched all the time, but it's the natural. Just cut your fucking pubes, Donald. All right. And that is a wrap on our very first episode of Historical Homos. We are so honored and excited that you showed up for us today because this has been such an amazing process for us to bring this, to get to a point where we're bringing this to you. So we hope you tune in to our next episode. I'm Donald Brophy. And I'm Bash. Please follow us at historical.homos on Instagram. Go on our website, follow us there, email, sign up, whatever. Subscribe to this, like this, send it to every human person that you know, and we will send you a complimentary lamb intestine for all of your douching needs. Hey, oh.